I'm Lindsay Hotmeyer, and welcome to Storyhouse. This is a podcast about growing your business, but it's also about slowing down the noise so you can give the world the best parts of who you are. So if you've struggled with all the buzz around storytelling only to feel like you don't have a story worth sharing, or if you're tired of being forced on the wheel of marketing that doesn't feel right, but also feels impossible to ignore, then be sure to meet me here every week to hear from real business owners as we dismantle all the should-dos and must-dos of business. Hear how they've wrestled through their own struggles and walk away with strategies that help you authentically and sustainably grow, scale, or pivot the business you've built. If you want to see what relationship-first marketing really looks like, spend a few weeks inside Stephen Westner's How to Fill Your Sales Pipeline Facebook group. It's free, and he legitimately gives away every ounce of what he's got. Stephen never holds back, and he never stops giving more. It's humbling, really, to watch from the outside. Stephen is the embodiment of generosity and the living example of what happens when you lead with your values. For over 25 years, he's been in the trenches of agency new business strategy, consulting with hundreds of agencies, business coaches, and consultants, teaching them how to plant their flag of authority, grow their audience, and fill their sales pipelines with a steady stream of right fit clients. Stephen founded Predictive ROI in 2009 and remains its CEO and co-owner, working alongside his business partner, Eric Jensen. Stephen hosts the Onward Nation and Sell with Authority podcast with listeners in over 140 countries and over 1,000 episodes. His marketing insights have been featured in major media, and he's the best-selling author of five books, including his latest entitled Sell with Authority. Stephen, thank you so much for saying yes to come on to Storyhouse, agreeing to chat with us. I know that you are going to have loads to share and that you're going to leave a favorite of lots of listeners because you just, you are a favorite. You are my favorite. So I'm so excited to talk to you. <laughs> well, that, that's that, that you're setting the bar high there, Lindsay. So hopefully, hopefully I can. <laughs> that was my goal. My goal was to make you like just shake in your boots. <laughs> So I'm just going to dig right in. You know, I've known you for a while now and just remember when our paths first crossed, I knew that you were somebody that I was going to want to keep in my my sphere and so luckily you haven't been able to squirm away from me yet. I still I still get to connect with you every so often and every time I do, I just leave feeling encouraged. And like, I just have some, some good nuggets of insight that I'm going to actually be able to apply and grow my, you know, apply to grow my business. And that's really kind of where you've hung your hat and have been able to really show up as, as that, that helper for so many people. And so let me just dig into that concept because I know that you talk a lot about being relentlessly helpful. And I think that experts talk about that a lot. Like, you know, don't have a scarcity mindset, you know, like be generous, give away your best stuff. But I don't think experts always actually live that out. And that's what sets you apart because you just do that ridiculously well. And so I guess twofold question. Okay. Talk to us about what it means to you as a business owner to be relentlessly helpful. Let's start there, and then I'm going to follow up with a, a little deeper and a little more personal question about that. But let's just let's talk about that one first. 
I love this question as a way to start us off because it is something that I believe fundamentally it's in my core, it's in my DNA. Uh, the word relentless, I'm, I'm stealing from, we're combining relentlessly helpful. I'm stealing from my dear friend, Susan Beyer. And you know she said that during one of our Q and A's and I'm like, oh, I love that. Um, I love the whole relentlessly helpful combination. So where does that come from for me? I'm not, I'm not joking or it's not marketing hyperbole when I say that it literally is part of my DNA and, and my, my, my grandfather immigrated here from Istanbul, Turkey, couldn't speak the language. And I'll, I'll give you an abridged version of his story. Couldn't speak the language and got here with $10 in his pocket. And after working six years in a downtown Canton, Ohio restaurant before the depression, saved enough money to open his own restaurant. And uh, a few years before the depression. So some would argue and say, that's probably not the best time uh, to, to start a new business. But during the depression, he gave away more soup than he ever sold. And so my, my pop or papu grandfather in Greek, he did that for two really important reasons when we asked him about that later. And his business plan was simple. And it was, if you take care of your customers, they will take care of you. And he believed it to his core. And I believe that that DNA was passed to us and that belief system was passed to us, his four amazing kids. And of course, I'm biased because those are my aunts and uncle, as well as my mom. And, and then us 10 grandkids. The, these were the principles that and we've all gone to, on to be entrepreneurs. These are the principles that we grew up with as kids. And also, you know, his son many years later, so my uncle and my godfather, Bill Marinitis, sat down with his dad and asked him once in, in, in my uncle Bill's restaurant. So my grandfather also passed on, you know, the, the career too, because now my uncle has owned two restaurants of his own. And, and so my uncle was sitting at the, at the counter asking, Pop, why'd you do that? Why did you give away more soup than you ever sold during the Depression? And, and even and even paying for it wasn't that much. Soup and sandwich, homemade soup and sandwich was a nickel. I'm like, you want to talk about the original value meal, but he gave it away during the depression. And so my pop looked at his son, my uncle, and he said, I know that Jesus is coming back someday. I don't know what he's going to look like. So I'm just going to be good to everybody. And so when I think of those things and behind me on the wall, it's tough to see, obviously, my background. But that's a photo of my grandfather standing behind the lunch counter of his first restaurant called The Ideal in downtown Canton, Ohio, just a few years before the Depression. And there he is serving his customers. So I believe this to the core. I think if you're truly going to be helpful, you give away the best of what you got, even if you can't afford to. Those are the lessons that I was taught from, you know, the beginning. For you personally from a business standpoint, what did it take to gain traction with that mentality? And were there moments where it was hard because you're giving it all away and you're you're waiting to see the fruit? Yeah, I think so gaining traction, I've, I've never really thought it that way just because it's always been a thing, right? So, you know, my, my life growing up was literally right out of the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Like, Lots of cousins and aunts and uncles and lots of people named Gus and Nick, right? And when when everybody gets together, it's like there's food and there's laughs, there's dancing, there's ouzo, there's desserts. Like it's just it's it's the epitome of generosity. To, so to not do that would feel weird, right? 
So, so there wasn't a thoughtful of, well, I'm going to do this and see if I get traction. It's just, this is who I am always and have been right. Like if I, if I look at all my cousins, they're the same way. And my cousins are like my brothers and sisters. We're, we're just, we are from that fabric. I think the, and, and then getting into sort of the business context, I think the thing that has been hardest for us maybe to teach, like the giving is part of who we are. I think the hardest thing for us to teach is you do it without any expectation of return. Because when we start to expect, that's where it becomes problematic. Well, I gave this person this thing and how come I didn't get nothing back yet? Because then you're not really truly giving. You're giving with sort of strings and that feels kind of gross, right? Like in a social context, if you take somebody to coffee because you're expecting some other sort of like, you know, whatever down the road, don't do it. If you take somebody to dinner because you're expecting something after dinner, starts to feel kind of gross. So in the business context too, you know, we're just people socially or in the business context. And people know if you're trying to stick your finger in their wallet and it feels yucky. So generously giving and giving away the best of what you got without any expectation return totally creates traction without the intent to do so. Yeah, and I think what's phenomenal, you know, personally about stepping into that mindset with you is that you do feel that difference when you when you do join your communities, when when you do sit across the Zoom screen or, you know, face truly face to face, you you do feel that difference. Mm. And I think that that's what's so magnetizing about you and the team at Predictive ROI is that there is that difference and people don't always know how to put their finger on it. They just feel it. They feel that genuine willingness to step in and help just because. Thank you. And and, and I'm glad that that comes through and it might seem kind of weird. It's like we work hard for it to come through like that. But what I mean by saying that, that we work hard at that is, is I mean, we have been told that we teach too much, that we give away too much, that we develop too many frameworks, that we put together too many systems, that we've built out our resource library too robustly, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know what? If that's the biggest knock that somebody has on predictive, all right, I can live with that, right? I, I would much rather that than, boy, they're kind of stingy with the thing. They gave us three pages when we know there's seven. They gave us eight steps when, they, when we know there's 15. You know, they made me pay for the other seven. Yeah, I I don't, I don't ever want to be that. Yeah. Well, talk me through that a bit because you do like if, if you visit the predictive ROI website, they do have a very robust library of resources and you are always, you know, showing up in an, in, in our inboxes saying, Hey, we have this new thing. We have this new framework. Let us teach it to you. How do you not feel like, like you're going down rabbit trails? How do you keep yourself focused? even though you're always developing new things like how do you how do you stay anchored in spite of always creating always experimenting i think it's because we we set some guardrails meaning you know we we have our content strategies based on our content blueprint right so we have three core strategies here predictive grow audience nurture leads increase sales we have nine supporting tactics three around each of the the core strategies 
And then the promise at the center, which is ROI. So we our promise in teaching all of this, that if you take this sell with authority methodology and apply it into your business, you're going to create a predictable, repeatable, theoretically profitable, if you manage your costs correctly, business uh, by following this methodology. So as far as like, you know, making sure that we don't go off of rabbit holes, you know, everything that we teach topically aligns with that content blueprint. And then as far as making sure we don't go into rabbit holes, we're like one month we're producing, we produce seven frameworks and then we don't do anything for six months is, you know, we've got a system that's this built to where, you know, our frameworks come out of interviews, prim primarily our frameworks come out of two sources, interviews that I do alongside Hannah Roth, our mad scientist and strategist here at Predictive. And so then we air that episode and we're talking about things that her and Eric Eric, as you know, my business partner here at Predictive and also our chief strategy officer, when Eric and Hannah are on the front lines strategy-wise with clients, Hannah then and I, once a month, we talk about those things or we talk about things that just came out of like experiments that came out of the, the Predictive lab. So those episodes typically turn into a framework. And then if I record a solo cast. Based on my experience, either in the biz dev profit process, excuse me, or out teaching or working alongside clients, then I record a solo cast about some of those big ahas or takeaways. And then oftentimes those turn into frameworks. So the recipe is at least one framework on a monthly basis that we share inside our Facebook community, that we share via email, that we develop video training around. And then what helps keeps us keep us focused is then those frameworks we're not teaching them at depth just because of time, space, and capacity, not because of, you know, not wanting to, but the best place to teach them at depth then are inside our March, July, November intensives. So then we take essentially the last three, four frameworks that were developed, and then we host a private event for our clients every March, July, November, two consecutive mornings, so not two full days. And then we go real deep into those frameworks and share data sets, like we go into our Keep CRM and share like the predictive lab data points so they can see it in full transparency. So anyway, we and then we just rinse and repeat that rhythm. And that's what kind of, those are the guardrails that keep us from going like sometimes seven, sometimes one, it keeps a nice consistent process. Yeah. I think too, you didn't say this, but I will, because I, I know that you do this you know, and you use the phrase in full transparency, which you use mm. and live out all the time. Mm. But the thing about what you present and what you teach is that you're presenting it, not with, while you have very much the authority of the expert, you're not coming at it with that posture. You're saying, hey, mm. this is what we're trying and this is how it's worked. And then, you know, the next week or the next month, you might be like, this is this is how it's still working. And if it's not working, then you're you're taking your audience on the ride with you. You're inviting them into that journey, that teaching journey, that learning journey, because kind of taking the the veil off of marketing and branding and business to say it's not all a sure path. Like this isn't always a sure footed path. This is about testing the market to see what works. We're doing that for you. And then we're going to show you what actually pans out for us. So th this is fascinating that you bring this up. And I'm really glad that you did because I think it's an incredibly important point. And whether, and whether somebody in your audience likes the metaphor, doesn't like the metaphor of eat your own dog food, they'll certainly get what I'm saying when I say that. And we believe that to our core. We, we would never, ever, ever suggest 
that one of our clients do something that we actually haven't run the gauntlet on ourselves already, and they can show them the data points and how it's worked. If somebody comes to us, hey, would you do this for us? We will oftentimes say no if, if we haven't already done that because we believe that so, so, so much. In fact, here, in, so <laughs> this, this is sort of the, the litmus test that I always find uh, funny is not the right word, but I, I don't know what the right word is. Anyway, when meeting with a prospective client and we serve agencies and consultants, and so oftentimes agencies don't practice the things that they sell for clients on themselves. And so when meeting with a prospective client and they're talking about, oh, that they do this, they do this, they do this, they do this on behalf of the clients, then I will often say, how has that worked when you applied that to yourself? And so often it's common for them to say, oh, well, you know, we, we, don't, we don't do that for ourselves. Why on earth not? And how can you stand in front of a client and say, we think you should use this lead gen system, but having not done that for yourself? It's weird to me. Yeah. And that is such a great, it's a great litmus test for anybody you're deciding to, to partner with. But it's also a great mirror to hold back on, on ourselves. Like, mm -hmm. am I really practicing what I'm preaching? And if I'm not, then why? Am I just lazy? Am I just tired? Am I bored with it? Or is it genuinely not effective? Myself. Yeah, the, the, this will be sort of a, uh, a provocative or maybe abrasive example. Nobody hires the out of shape personal trainer. Right, right. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. One of the things that then you also teach through these frameworks that you use these frameworks to point your audience back to is helping them to solve that big, hairy problem of finding the right clients. And, you know, that's a big problem for, for all of us at different journeys of our business growth. And so would you mind giving us a few of the secrets, which you don't really have secrets, but a few of the, the strategies that you, that you give to your audience or to your clients to really help them solve that problem? Because to your point that, that you just mentioned, there's a lot of advice out there that's mm. given to us, do X, Y, and Z but it doesn't generate results. And so how do you actually help solve that problem for, for your clients? So typically the, the, typically the problems or business issues that we're helping our clients solve typically will, will fit into like maybe three buckets, not knowing who to sell to. And if they did, not sure what to sell and how much to sell it for, and then not sure how to sell it. So we call that the who, the what, and the how. And so when we're having conversations, and so we've used these instructional design models and so forth that we teach, we've, we use them on our own business. And so helping our clients solve them their problems, we, we use these same frameworks or instructional design models. And one of those is called the transformational triangle. And helping our clients then put themselves in the shoes of their own client or prospective client. And here's what often happens. So then when we're having the conversation with somebody about the business issues and challenges that they solve on behalf of a client, it is so common that the first one might be like pretty well spot on. And then number two, number three starts to weave into their own value proposition. Like, no, time out. It is not about you. And so when we think about the big hairy problem, so going high level, going back to your question, the big hairy problem in solving that 
to the best of your ability, taking you out of it. It doesn't have anything to do with you. So if you're trying to solve a big, hairy problem on behalf of your client, it doesn't have anything to do with you. It's all about them, right? And, and so that's where I think the, the hangup comes is because we accidentally stick ourselves in the middle of it. And then whether somebody likes that metaphor of, you know, it's tough to read the label when you're stuck inside the bottle. Right. I mean, th- this is why and it is difficult then we're, when we're trying to think then how to solve a problem for ourselves. So let's kind of reverse the question then. Like if we were trying to solve a problem for predictive, how would we do that? Like if there was a predictive or a problem inside our business and what business doesn't have those types of challenges, right? Or growth opportunities is you hire the experts. This is not some sort of like subconscious pitch to hire predictive. It's you hire experts who can help you solve that problem, help you properly identify the problem and solve it. Just like when we needed to build a new version of predictiveroi.com and Erica and I are like, have we written website content before? Yep. Have we designed information architectures before for websites? Yep. Hundreds of times. Could we do it for ourselves and do it well? Nope. Could we actually tell our story effectively? Nah. And so what'd we do? We hired Lindsay. Why? Because she's freaking amazing. And we knew that you, with your strategic process and how well you know Eric and I and our team as people, you could help us solve this problem. Or when we're trying to like scale the business and we're trying to scale the business smoothly. So five years ago, six years ago, six years ago, we hired Drew McClellan, CEO of Agency Management Institute to run us through our quarterly leadership team meetings. And he's done it every quarter for six years to hold us accountable, to push us, to force us to find things in the business. So when when trying to solve a problem for on behalf of your client, you use a framework like the transformational triangle. You take yourself out of the process and it's all about them, not you. And then when you're trying to solve a big hairy problem for yourself, you bring in experts because your bias unconsciously or consciously screws up the process. So you bring in an expert. Yeah, it is really hard to solve your own problem. And is that and that can feel like I think that what that can do for business owners is makes imposter syndrome flare. And then you start to get in this really negative cycle, because when you're struggling with the exact same things that you help other people do, it's like if I can't fix this myself, then what's what's I I must be a terrible fraud for everybody else. Yes. And and so that that's, I think why, well, that's why your process, and, and it, you, you certainly did not ask me to talk about your process. It just feels very appropriate here as an answer to your question. Right. So, so the irony is, do we do a lot of content development here? Yep. We sure do. But when you're changing the lens, you know, back to yourself or looking in the mirror, or whatever you want to call it, you know, having outside expertise in the rigor of their process is an incredibly valuable opportunity. And not just for the result outcomes or the deliverables or whatever, but there's generally growth in big ahas Mm -hmm. that come out of that process. And those big ahas, you know, it's not like, it's not like it's part of the cost estimate, It's just one of those incredibly valuable things of the growth and the transformation through the process. So solving the problem is one thing, 
but the sort of the path, the evolution of getting to the solution is incredibly valuable. So having the opportunity to be led by a guy, to be taken by the hand, and when, in this case, you say, I got you, and let me show you the process and, and why we do that, then Eric and I are like, okay, great. Wow. Not only did we make a great decision, but, we, but we're learning a ton through the process. And of course, the result outcome was amazing website content for the new predictiveroi.com. What about, you know, part of your journey on the outside, looking in at you now, it's like, oh my gosh, they're on fire. Everything they do turns to gold. You know, they're just, they're just full steam ahead. But I know that the truth behind a business is that often what we see on the outside, that's not the full story. And I know your Mm -hmm. journey to, to where you're at now hasn't always been easy. And so I would just wonder if you can peel back the, the pull back the curtain a bit for us to let us know as a, a business owner who helps other business owners, what were some of those big hurdles or obstacles that you had to figure out before you could get the success? What did that journey look like for you? Uh, there's a lot of scars, right? And and I, I love meeting business owners who are transparent and sharing what the scars are. I, I find that so much more admirable and inspirational than somebody who's like, oh, I've been so perfect. My entire business, you know, is like, okay, that's nonsense. So what I what I learned early on in predictive's history, just a couple of years in, I mean, we experienced a $2 million mistake because of my pride and in not paying attention to the experts who are around us, people that we had paid and compensated for their expertise and, and I ignored it. So in 2012, we signed a contract with the Ritz-Carlton in Orlando for an all-inclusive event over three or four days where I signed a contract to reserve uh, 350 rooms in a 425-room hotel. This, uh, this event that we called Predictive ROI Live, which was a silly name, but that's what I chose, mm-hmm. you know, had a $2 million operating budget. And when we opened it up for sale of the 300 or reservation for the seats, the 350 seats, I had a price tag on it of $8,000 a seat. And we sold three in a ballroom that would have been set for 350. So a little awkward, Mm -hmm. right? And so to fast forward, we ended up canceling the event and all of that. It cost us a couple hundred thousand dollars in cash out of our business, which was not easy to do at the time. And, you know, Darren Hardy, former publisher of Success Magazine, who was on our board of advisors, said to me, like in all of our monthly planning meetings and that kind of stuff or whatever, he continued to ask me the question, who is going to come to this and why? And I just kept saying to him, one, I I had horrible answers, but I would fumble my way through it that why wouldn't they want to come to this? They're going to get to hear you and, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk and Avinash Kashik from Google and the list goes on. And he's like, that's dumb. <laughs> like, why, why would someone spend $8,000 to come to this thing? And I could never answer the question. And so my own hubris and arrogance and whatever cost us a $2 million revenue opportunity. That's one thing. But it sucked a couple hundred thousand dollars in cash out of the business, which we could not afford at that time. Mm-hmm. So the lesson that I learned there is, well, a whole lot of event planning lessons, right? But what I also learned was the more that I've talked about that mistake, as well as many others in the business, the inverse of what I thought would happen has happened. 
you actually gain credibility. It's actually a shortcut to trust. It's actually being able to share your wins, losses, your foibles, your high fives, all of those things, going back to your word transparency or the word that you use transparency. That's why we teach in full transparency now. One, because we don't want anyone to make that kind of a colossal mistake because it was awful. But at the same point too, as is, you know, the more that we're transparent, and I don't know how we could be more transparent, but but the more transparency we use in our business, people lean into that. And I don't know if it's because it's super rare or because it helps them avoid the pitfalls, whatever, but it helps us build trust because they see that, you know, the person behind the green curtain is just, you know, somebody working mechanicals and that kind of stuff. We don't want that ever to be in our business. Yeah. Circling back on that mistake, what was the response from you and those around you moving forward that allowed you to be able to pick yourself up from that Mm. and keep going? Well, I'm, you know, candidly, you know, when we, when we realized that we had to close the event or shut the event down and we officially canceled it, you know, it, it was, we, we went through a legitimate grieving process. You know, one of our speakers who we had contracted with, Scott McCain, sent me this note and he was really involved in sort of the planning process and uh, not, not planning, excuse me, like the promotional process. We'd recorded a video together in San Diego. We had just done a lot of different things to really help level up the event in the experience and all of that. And he sends me an email or actually he recorded a, a video and sent it to me. And he said, he goes, I, f- I feel like, I feel like I'm in grieving uh, of the loss of something really special. And that's how we all felt. I, 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 I felt like grief stricken that something had, that something was now gone. And I, and I know that might sound ridiculous to some, but we had invested two years of our life and a lot of, and a lot of money, trips, travel, all that stuff, planning. I mean, it was near and dear to ourselves or to us predictive. So it was now gone. It was dead. So once we got through the initial grieving and what helped was I, I got a, a note from Darren a couple of days later. And he said to me, he goes, listen, the event was not your business. You still have a great business. And yeah, maybe you're a high school baseball player or a college varsity player. And you stepped up to the plate, you know, swinging for the fences as a Yankee and you struck out. So buckle up buttercup and get back at it, dust off the uniform and run the business. And I was like, wow. Uh, okay. All right. So now, now when I look back on it, could I have done it better? Yes. There's a litany of things that if we ever did a live in-person event that we would do differently as a result of predictive ROI live, no doubt. But also if somebody were to say, like, do you regret that? No, because I, I think how that scaled our knowledge quickly through a crucible was invaluable. What about when somebody goes through a hard time, you know, listeners right now are just kind of in the thick of it. And the advice is kind of always what you, what you just said, you know, pick yourself up, brush yourself off, move forward. But there are times in life or in business where it is time to tap out, right? Yep. So I'm curious to know for like, this is like the antithesis of what any podcast messaging should be, right? It's always like, <laughs> don't, go, don't quit. But how do you know, like, how do you know when to tune into that voice in your head that's telling you it is time to just... 
pivot and move and go on or pick yourself up? I, I, I think it's, I think it's different for everyone, you know? So for, for me, uh, I can only answer it from my perspective. And that is through a lot of prayer and prayerful consideration of next steps in Proverbs 16, three, the Lord wrote through Solomon, mm-hmm. commit to the Lord, whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. That's part of my daily prayer. And my daily prayer is that I pray for the direction of my steps today and every day going forward. And I pray that the direction of predictive steps this day and every day going forward, and that would be according to his will and that he would establish our plans. And so when I think about quitting, I think about that first and I prayerfully consider because yeah, everyone has thoughts of that, of quitting, going a different direction, blowing something out. It's natural. But then I prayerfully consider what it is that I'm supposed to be doing here. And that reinvigorates me. I think about my grandfather who took all of those risks so that I could have the privilege of doing what it is that I do today. And I, and I treat that with so much honor and respect that I feel like if I don't do what I need to do today in the application of the fullest of God's gifts and talents, that I'm letting my pop down. And that means a lot to me. And, you know, one of his messages to me and all of us is don't ever quit. Now that said, I think that that's for me. And so I would encourage your listeners to prayerfully consider next steps. I would encourage your listeners to talk to family and friends who have been through similar situations. I would not suggest that they take advice from family and friends who have never done what it is that they're trying to do. I once had a conversation with someone as we were growing the business. There's a, we have a team of 18. And as we were growing the business and adding more people, someone who has never owned a business before looked at me and said, oh boy, that's that's a lot. That's a lot of payroll and blah, blah, blah. Are you sure you should really be blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, you, you have, there should be no conversation here whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Right. So if somebody is thinking about like, this is hard, is this really what I want to do? And all of that, I would encourage them to prayerfully consider, talk to friends and family who have done or navigated successfully what they're trying to work through and, or, seek out mentors. That does not mean for a fee. Seek out mentors, advisors, and so forth, the people who have wrestled with the same thing that they're wrestling with and would be willing to sit down for a cup of coffee and help them look for the path forward. But I think oftentimes what ends up happening is we get stressed and then we turn to somebody who doesn't have experience, good intentions, but doesn't have experience. And then we go down a path that we shouldn't have. And we should have maybe stayed the course or gone in a different direction and then, uh, you know, full speed ahead. So ask the right person for advice. Yeah, I think that that, you know, like to your point of going in a different direction. And I think that that's something that we we both do with our clients, you know, is that that helping in that pivot and that that sometimes is what's just it's necessary like you are at a growth phase and that feels really hard and really crappy. And that's where you really start to question things and you're either going to jump off completely or do the thing that the growth phase is inviting you to do, which is to pivot. Can I add I, one more thing to that? Yes, please. Okay. 
I, I don't remember if it was for the movie Pumping Iron or when this happened or whatever, but somebody was interviewing Arnold Schwarzenegger in the late 70s. The movie was recorded, I think, in 1979. And, and so he, he sort of turned the tables on the whoever the reporter was. And Arnold said, say you're going to do a set of 10 repetitions for a particular exercise, right? It's called bench press. And he asked the reporter, what repetition gives you the most growth? Right. And, and for anybody who has ever exercised or done strength training before, the first three or four repetitions are pretty easy. Right. Mm -hmm. Then five and six, you can start to feel the burn because the lactic acid is starting to build up in your muscles and the oxygen is being depleted. Repetition seven, pretty hard. Repetition eight, pretty hard, assuming that you've weighted it properly on the bar. Mm -hmm. The nine and 10 are a real struggle. So the reporter thought, easy answer, 10, repetition 10. And Arnold leaned in and said, no, it's 12. <laughs> so the point is, is that whatever it is that we think is our perceived limit, it isn't. It's uncomfortable, no doubt. How do you get to 12 repetitions? You have some spotters. Okay, so think mentors and advisors. They help you lighten the lift maybe to get to 12 or to 13, or to 14, and to 15. And then one of the training principles that he used famously in his Mr. Olympia reigns is that once you get to 12 or 15, you start stripping off weights. You do three more, you strip off weights, you do three more, you strip off weights, you do three more. It's called the pyramid. So what we feel like is the initial resistance point is that. It's the initial resistance point. Now, I'm not saying that you should blow past, you know, very serious circumstances or trauma or dangerous situations. I am not saying that in the least little bit. But what I am saying is, is that when we have those temptations to quit, to really think through where is that coming from? And could I enlist the help or advice of people who have done it before to help me push through and get the 12th rep? That's great. That's great. All right. Well, Stephen. I want to end there because that's really, really powerful. That's a great, that's a great ending point to just leave people to think through. Where can people connect more with you? Where can they get more of, of Stephen and predictive? Two places, really. So, you know, happy to connect on LinkedIn. So find me there if you like. And and then go to our resources library that we that we chatted about a couple of times. And and as Lindsay said, I mean, the the best of what we got is in there, including you know, if you want a copy of the Sell with Authority book that I wrote alongside Drew McClellan from Agency Management Institute, we give it away for free. I mean, the, the, the paperback will ship it to you or if you want a Kindle. And honestly, we don't charge for shipping or anything like that. I just did an interview a little bit ago, Lindsay, it was funny. And my guest is in New Zealand. And so it was, it was awesome. I mean, she was getting, she got up at two in the morning to do this interview, which was really, really cool. Time zones are horrible. And, and, and she said, she held up a copy of the Sell with Authority book. And she goes, I think this is so amazing that you actually sent this to me. And I go, why? She goes, well, I'm in New Zealand. And I'm like, yeah. And she goes, oftentimes if I re request a book, then a day later, I get an email from their fulfillment house that says, oh, sorry, we didn't realize you were in New Zealand. I'm like, all right, well, we sent it to you anyway. Enjoy it. And she's like, this is fantastic. So if you, if you want a copy of the book, request it, we'll send it to you any other resources there. So that's predictiveroi.com slash resources. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Stephen. You're very welcome. And thank you for the invitation. 
As founder and CEO at Storyhouse 15, my vision is to build a world of people who have answered the call that's been uniquely placed upon their lives. So if you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. And if you're ready to grow and pivot with clarity and confidence, be sure to stop by and say hello at storyhouse15.com.